0: Hey, friends, welcome to the Health Via Modern Nutrition HVMN podcast. This is your host, Jeffrey Wu. And I'm super excited to have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Dale Bredesen, who's a very well-regarded researcher and academic within the space of things that we all know and love, neuroscience, human performance, and the more academic side of biohacking. But let's unpack all of that. Dale, great to have you on the program.
1: Great to be here. Thanks so much, Jeff.
0: So your CV, academic record, speaks for itself, being an you know, uh, administrator, executive of some of the largest nonprofit research institutions, as well as being a, a well-regarded, well cited research scientist yourself. Let's, let's trace back the history. How did you get interested in science? Where did young Dale come from? What's that backstory? What's that backdrop?
1: Yeah, so you know, I, I, was, at, uh, I was at Caltech, actually. I was interested in computers. And uh, when I got to Caltech uh, as a freshman, I got very interested in the brain um, and its relationship to computer use and computer function. I got very interested in synapses and how they form and how you have uh, memory and, and function in this amazing 500 trillion synapse thing inside your skull. And then I started getting interested in the fact that this is the area of greatest biomedical failure. When you look at therapy for neurodegenerative diseases, this is the area of medicine that has failed more than any other. So as, as people say, everybody knows a cancer survivor, no one knows an Alzheimer's survivor. So I get very interested in you know, wh- why these brain diseases, why is Alzheimer's so incredibly common? And it's really, people don't emphasize this enough. It's, it's a disease where people really don't understand what it is because it's not a typical infectious disease. It's not a typical neoplastic disease. It's not a typical autoimmune disease. And so there are all sorts of theories out there. And so I went from Caltech to, and actually spent some time at MIT as well, and then went on to uh, to go to medical school so I could understand something about brain disease and actually worked for two Nobel laureates, uh, for Dr. Roger Sperry, who was the guy who won for split brain and then Dr. Stan Prusner, uh, who won for his discovery of prions. So came to UCSF to study neurology and then work for Dr. Prusner uh, and get very interested in what what is all this about. And so in 30 years, we, we published over 220 papers in various journals. And the really interesting finding was, if you look at the fundamental nature of the neurodegenerative process, it's very different than what we're told. We're told it's because of misfolded proteins or reactive oxygen species or prions or tau or amyloid and on and on and on. Uh, Herpes simplex has come up, type three diabetes. They're all, everyone's got their favorite thing. But if you step back and look at this, What happens is you have various neural subsystems within your brain and there's a plasticity system that's related to Alzheimer's, there's a motor modulation system that's related to Parkinson's, there's a motor power system that's related to ALS and you can go right down there, various different subsystems. In each of these subsystems, there is a supply and a demand. And for all of these, you develop these neurodegenerative diseases, perhaps not too surprisingly, when the supply is exceeded by the demand repeatedly or chronically. And so the interesting thing is these are network dysfunctions. And so you can literally go through and look at the various components of the network that are related to Alzheimer's. And we published a few years ago, we initially identified 36 components. There are a few more, but it's not thousands. There are a few dozen things that are absolutely critical for your best plasticity. And that's both on the side of losing it for Alzheimer's, and the side of optimizing it for best brain function. And so the good news is, we started measuring so uh, 2014, we actually published the first examples of reversal of cognitive decline in patients with Alzheimer's. I'm really excited right now, because we just finished the first trial in history, in which instead of predetermining a treatment, which is what's typically done, you say, I'm going to use this drug or that drug, or this instrumentation, whatever. In this case, we flip the script. And what we do is we look at all the different contributors to cognitive decline, and it has to do with various pathogens and various toxins and various neurotrophic activities and things like that, you can measure these. And then in fact, what you can do is enhance the ones that are supportive, reduce the ones that are destructive, and we get people uh, improving dramatically, we results that are unprecedented. So we're just getting this published very excited about that.
0: Amazing. I think, I mean, just this speaks to me personally, because I'm a computer science guy by background as well. My folks actually just move right next to Caltech in Pasadena. So I walk through that campus. Every time I visit my folks, I study computer science at Stanford. And I think it's folks that have that systems background or training, I, I think the most interesting computer is the human brain. So I think a lot of empathy and incitement in that area. And I think obviously, as you get into human performance, there's so many different avenues around metabolic health, enhancing sports physiology, military back uh, military special operations. But my story of getting into human performance is the brain, I I think the brain is the most interesting lever of humanity, right? Like, uh, we're not very impressive in other (laughs) aspects of (laughs) uh, physiology, other than our brain. So, my interest originally was, hey, how do we become a little bit more efficient? How do we optimize this single organ that seems to be the key differentiator between us and other animals in the ecosystem? So, one thing that I feel like has been especially hazy is this notion of you know, is the brain too complicated to understand to break down. And again, I think you're exactly right on on dot in terms of like, all everyone's pet theories, I think like Alzheimer's is a type three bite diabetes is a very popular meme within the low carb ketogenic community. Can you walk us through that idea maze that historical evolution where I remember, yeah, tau prions were like the theory of the jour, you know, maybe 1015 years ago, uh, I would say Alzheimer's is type three diabetes is a relatively recent popular phenomenon, I imagine that we're getting really more directionally correct. So I think there is likely something about insulin resistance in in neurons that impacts that cognitive health. But curious to hear from the expert. I mean, how do you walk through the idea maze? Where are these theories? uh, Not fully describing what's happening in nature? And how do we walk towards your current model thinking about this disease or this chronic state?
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And you know, the thing is that Everybody, as you said, has their pet theories. And there are two problems here. What happens is, number one, people look at it with their own system. Like, okay, and, you know, when people we're looking at, we see this. But okay, it's kind of like saying, you know, what went wrong with your computer? Oh, the problem with computers is people smash them. Well, occasionally, but that's not the problem with most computers. Other things go wrong. And I recognize the brain and, and computers, they're not, they're not identical. There are lots of differences. Fair enough. But you still have about 500 trillion connections uh, in your brain. And and in fact, uh, when we think of Alzheimer's, it is essentially, especially early on a synaptoporosis. So you've lost synaptic connections. The other big problem that people have had is that they then apply their ideas to mouse models. And the mouse models have very little to do with human Alzheimer's. The mouse models are very specifically genetic models where you've expressed an abnormal gene within the brain. That is the case of less than 5% of human Alzheimer's. More than 95% is so-called sporadic. And so the big surprise has been the stuff that we associate with Alzheimer's, this amyloid beta that collects in lakes in your brain is actually a protective peptide. So your brain is literally defending itself and so the drug companies have been out there saying, aha, amyloid is bad. But so we're going to get rid of it. And why did they think that? Well, it's, this is very analogous to what has happened during the pandemic. So what happened just over a year ago, we all heard about this horrible insult, which is SARS-CoV-2, the virus. And what were we told we were told to shelter in place, we were told to social distance to pull back, because there is an insult there. We did that. And we ended up in a recession, we ended up now having to have lots of stimulus to bring things back. This is exactly what your brain is doing in pre Alzheimer's, which by the way, for 20 years before you have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, you've already started the pathophysiology on that track. So I couldn't agree with you more optimizing performance and minimizing risk for future decline is huge and should really be started in your 30s, 40s even potentially into your 20s. The disease that we used to think of as a disease of the 60s, 70s and 80s is really starting in the 40s and sometimes in late 30s. And you can do a lot before that to optimize things and There's a tremendous amount you can do. So what the problem has been people say, Okay, it's type three diabetes. Well, so, yes, that's a contributor. But that's not the crux of what this is. You have to look at the big picture to say, what is this system that is dysfunctional this is a network disorder of your brain that results in the loss of millions of synapses and ultimately many neurons as well and so the so if you if you look at it mathematically your probability of developing alzheimers is proportional to an integral over time of the ratio of your synaptoclastic signaling that's the pulling back which is normal you're doing both all the time you're you're going forward, you're pulling back to your synaptoblastic signaling. That's the making and keeping of synapses. So essentially, your brain is looking at two different modes, a mode where things are good, I'm going to grow and make and I'm going to make synapses. Again, this is no different than your president of your country would do say things are good. We're in a good time, we're going to make we're going to make new bridges, we're going to make new roads, we're going to interact with new countries, all these sorts of things. That is a growth mode and your brain does that. That's the synaptoblastic mode. Synaptoclastic mode is pulling back. That is a protective downsizing mode that it happens when you're exposed to all the things that people keep saying, oh, it's Alzheimer's, it's type three, it's herpes simplex. Yes, these things are all part of the reason for downsizing. It's the it's the reason your brain goes into this protective mode and makes the amyloid. So this silly idea of we're just going to remove your amyloid and everything will be great is extremely naive. What you have to do is remove the insults that are causing you to make the amyloid. And yes, it has to do with herpes. So if you look at that integral, let's break it down. There are four terms two in the numerator, two in the denominator. So, synaptoclastic signaling over synaptoblastic signaling is approximately equal to the sum of all the different things that create inflammation, various leaky gut, P. gingivalis from your mouth, herpes simplex from your lip, molds from your sinus, anything that can get into your brain and cause inflammation. The amyloid that we vilify in Alzheimer's is part of the inflammatory process. So just as in COVID, people are dying from cytokine storm. In Alzheimer's, they're dying from cytokine drizzle, you're you've got this many years associated mild chronic inflammatory innate system activation process. So the first term in the integral then is inflammation, and anything that's inflammatory related and lots of things can cause that the second term is toxins. And it turns out that there are three groups of toxins that contribute typically to poor cognition, and ultimately to Alzheimer's. One of them is inorganics, things like mercury, the whole uh, California fires are going to result in increased dementia, no question about it. The people who were in the first responders in the World Trade Center, 13% of them already had cognitive decline by 2015. That was published a couple years ago, huge problem. Second group, organics, benzene, toluene, glyphosate, formaldehyde, those things. Third group is biotoxins. And most people don't realize when they're being exposed to these biotoxins. It's things typically made by molds, or other organisms, things like trichothecenes. Uh, and Ocratoxin A and gliotoxin and aflatoxin and things like that. And there's certain mold species that produce these not all of them. It's the big ones are the stachybotrys, penicillium, aspergillus, ketomium and wallemia. Those are the big five. So that's the that's the numerator of the equation. And in the denominator are two things. So one thing is anything that is energetic. So energetics for your brain, absolutely crucial. Four main pieces for that energetics are blood flow, oxygenation, ketones to burn basically, and mitochondrial function. So yeah, if you've got poor mitochondrial function, you're not going to do as well with your cognition. So many people are having cognitive issues or suboptimal cognition, because they get some hypoxia when they sleep at night, very common and often undiagnosed. And then the last term is trophic support. So and that's that breaks down into three things. It's growth factors like nerve growth factor, BDNF, things like that. And then the second one is hormones. So no question if you have very low estradiol or testosterone, you're at increased risk, especially if you had a sudden decline. So the first derivative is critical there. And then the third piece is nutrients. So basically getting that you can see where someone stands. And when we treat people and we urge people either get on prevention, or get an early change. When you start having problems, don't wait, doctors will often tell you, oh, there's nothing you can do. So just come in next year, You're, you're not that bad yet, which is the worst possible idea, worst possible suggestion you could have. Because in fact, you want to get in as early as possible, you want to find out why you're on the wrong side of that equation. And you want to then deal with that you want to find out what are the things that are contributing to it. And you're absolutely right. Insulin resistance is one of the most common. There are about 80 million Americans who have insulin resistance, and improving that very, very helpful for optimal cognition.
0: Yeah, no, there's a lot to unpack there. I think that's very dense information. So a few ways to I want to just like bounce back and riff and unpack here. So one, I really love the mathematical description of this system. I think yeah, as a physicist turned computer scientist. I, th- I think the quantitative description of this problem, I think needs to be that there's this needs to be the future of medicine needs to be the future of physiology, because I think that I mean, biology has been so complicated it has been quite qualitative, but as you're using mathematical language is much more precise. So I very much resonate. Uh, and I, we should break down the integrals and explain that a little bit more detail for folks who are not, you know, might not have you know, done multivariate calculus, or just not up to speed in terms of integrals and derivatives. So we should break that down a little bit. But two, I think it's very interesting from the amyloid tau hypothesis, where billions of dollars of drug development have been deployed into removing amyloid or tau. And they all failed, like literally, these big pharma companies have written off billion dollar programs for this. And I think it is kind of uh, amazing from, you know, I think, after that fact, after these hypotheses have failed to realize that this is the same fallacy as seeing ambulances at car crashes, right? There's a massive difference between correlation versus causation. And it's like almost funny to me that some of these very, very complicated, nuanced, sophisticated medical researchers and drug developers have fallen for that fallacy. Right? Like, if you see a car crash, and you see a lot of ambulances there, and a lot of police officers there, the correlational observation is, oh, wow, ambulances and cops are bad. Like, we got to get rid of ambulances, we got to get rid of cops. And as I think we're starting to now understand these biomarkers, these these proteins are really the body trying to compensate just like the ambulance and the police officers and the paramedics are there trying to help. Yeah. So I, I think that's like a very visceral way to just understand that, hey, like a lot of the things that we thought were bad that just happened to crew up in the brain, that's actually the body trying to compensate. And I think that 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 ambulance metaphor, I think makes it really, really crisp
1: for people. Yeah. And you know, there's no question the future of medicine is in software. What's what's happened, as you know, is the development so far has been things like, either let's do electronic health records, okay, fine or let's just cast a wide net and get data from everything and then use AI to see if we can kind of sort things out. But it's really going to be much more helpful to partner with understanding the underlying physiology. And on the the other side, we doctors have been very remiss in our bringing this to to, you know, to the, the software developers and the engineers. So we need to have more interaction. And this has to be and so this is In fact, part of what we do, we look at many, many different variables in all of these patients. If you go into a classical memory center today, and say, either look, if you say, I just want to have a better memory, they're going to say we don't do that. If you say I'm having problems with my memory, okay, then then they'll look and say, Okay, you you have Alzheimer's, there's nothing we can do about it, they're going to get a very small data set. Um, This is you know, this is decades out of date. We need now human beings are complicated organisms. As you mentioned earlier, the brain is is very complicated. Uh, You know, we're not the uh, fastest runners or the biggest jumpers in the animal world, but we do have the brains that the other animals don't. So in fact, you've got to look at many, many different variables. So typically, people look at just a few, we're looking currently at a still a tiny number, we do look at genomes, Uh, we look at about 150 different historical and biochemical variables. But this look this needs to be 150 million. Ultimately, there needs to be many, many things there need to be very simple and inexpensive ways, you know, to look at the biochemistry that drives this neurodegenerative process. So clearly, this is the way things are going. But here this is one thing that I you know, we have to be fair to the people that have been working on tau and amyloid. You're right, they've been barking up the wrong tree. But the, the trick and the problem that everybody ran into is, Yes, they are the ambulances and the police, but they're also causing the downsizing. And that's where everybody got confused. They are mediators, both of the protection and the downsizing. So if you just add the tau or add the amyloid to the brain, you will see that the brain downsizes. You will see that there is a collapse. And so naturally people said, aha, let's stop that collapse. Well, the problem turned out to be they're doing it in response to these various insults. So they're really playing both sides. It's a that's why I call it a protective downsizing network response. So what we need to do is to identify upstream all the drivers of this process. Then actually these approaches to reducing amyloid and reducing tau could potentially be quite important. But these, as you know, the trials that have been so far where they're just looking at let's remove amyloid or let's remove tau have not been successful. Uh, Interestingly, recently, there was one that was published, uh, got a lot of response, like this is a big success. So this came from Eli Lilly. And this was an antibody called donanumab, which which removes amyloid. So it didn't help anybody get better. It didn't stabilize the disease. What it did was it slowed the decline by one third. So that's how bad things are when we're calling that a success. Of course, what we want is for people to actually improve. And in the trial I mentioned that we recently finished, 80% of the people uh, actually improved. And they didn't just slow their decline. They didn't just stabilize their decline. They actually improved their score. So just dramatic improvements in, in a number of people. So we're very excited about that. And I think, you know, this is the future. There are going to, there's going to be a desire to remove that amyloid and remove the tau after you've removed what's driving the problem.
0: hundred percent, right? You're like it's essentially instead of just solving for the leaves, you need to uh, solve for the trunk. And if you solve the trunk, the leaves or will, will, will resolve itself. So I think one thing that is worth unpacking here is diving a little bit about the mathematical description, especially how it relates to type three uh, diabetes, because I think that is a very popular model within the low carb ketogenic community. And I think it's directionally correct in the sense that as you're saying, you know, uh, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance is a disaster in Western population, especially in America, that seems to be an important part of the component. But I, I, I actually, you know, you know, this is the first time hearing that you know, the way you describe the model, it does not obviate that model. It's just like that that is one critical component within the larger overall kind of framework, which I think actually resonates quite tightly with me, because I think just insulin resistance doesn't seem to fully capture the ideology of Alzheimer's, because I think Alzheimer's is very, very complicated. And it makes sense that as you're talking about inorganics, uh, biotoxins, that seems to be a fuller description. So just as you have Newtonian physics, Einsteinian general relativity, quantum mechanics, being uh, <laughs> broader descriptions of the same problem in some sense. Uh, and just to clarify for the audience here, you're not obviating uh, the key insight that there is a high degree of insulin resistance as a core, like a potentially a major driver in a lot of these cases of Alzheimer's. But is it the one and only driver? I think that is an incomplete uh, explanation. So I'd love for you to reconcile or at least integrate the observation or the or or the popular meme or the popular description of type three, Alzheimer or type three diabetes into, I think what you have is is a more holistic explanation or model.
1: Yeah, so let's start with the fact, yeah, this is maybe the most common contributor. So absolutely, it's an important one. But let's start with the fact that insulin resistance is neither sufficient nor required for Alzheimer's disease. So there are plenty of people who get it who don't have insulin resistance. And there are plenty of people who have insulin resistance that don't develop Alzheimer's. So that's the beginning. And then secondly, let's go back and look. So we talked about basically four terms. Inflammation is in the numerator toxins are in the numerator and then the denominator is energetics. No question good energetics are, are inhibitory of the process. Um, and then trophic support from hormones from growth factors and from nutrients. Okay, so if you now develop problems with either pre diabetes or type two diabetes, what happens very interesting, you actually have two different effects of this. And they're both critical in Alzheimer's disease, which is again, one of the reasons it's such a common driver. So number one, as you increase your glucose, as you know, there's non enzymatic glycation of hundreds and hundreds of proteins. And of course, you can measure this simply as hemoglobin a1c but that's just one protein there are hundreds of others that are still getting glycated and that causes change in function it causes change in structure it causes ongoing inflammation there are other inflammatory molecules glyoxals and things like that that come about with high glucose so you have increase in the inflammatory term of that equation and then the second thing is you also have a decrease in the denominator in the trophic term So what happens is, as you know, your insulin binds to a receptor insulin receptor and signals through a molecule called IRS one. And this is the dominant signaling molecule downstream from insulin. Now when you have high insulin for a period of time, what happens is you change the phosphorylation pattern of IRS one. And so literally, you go from a a period where you have IRS one being mostly tyrosine phosphorylated, which part is part of its activation to switching over to serine and threonine phosphorylation, which is part of inhibiting it. So same thing, let's imagine you have a little son, who's, you know, six years old, who's playing the drums incredibly loud all the time. This is just like your high insulin all the time, all the time. Okay, so you get some you get a headset so that you don't hear this these high drums. Now your wife comes home and puts on a Brahms lullaby, you don't even hear it. And that's exactly what happens with insulin. So the insulin because it's high for years because we're eating these high amounts of carbs, we're driving that insulin up, then what happens is our IRS one actually changes chemical structure so that it now has the serine threonine phosphor, it's turning itself down because you've had this chronically high now what happens when you're normally signaling, you're not getting much of a response. And in fact, insulin is one of the most important trophic factors in the brain. So when we used to do a lot of growth of brain cells in petri dishes in the lab, we would always have to include insulin in there, because it is such an important growth factor within the. Lab. but it doesn't even stop there. There's another piece which is insulin, of course, once you make it has to be degraded. Otherwise, you're going to get hypoglycemia. So how do you degrade your insulin with a an enzyme, which is called IDE, insulin degrading enzyme? Well, guess what else that degrades? It also degrades amyloid. So you can do one or the other you if so now you've got this stuff, which is now trying to degrade your insulin, you're not degrading your amyloid. So as you can see, you've got multiple reasons now that you are contributing to your cognitive decline, when you have insulin resistance, and when you have glycated proteins, and when you have high IDE, for all of these reasons, you're contributing. And it's one of the most common things and one that absolutely is treatable. So people keep telling us, don't bother to find out your genetic predisposition because there's nothing you can do about Alzheimer's. Don't bother to treat it, you know, we don't know what causes it. And I think you know, it's really unfortunate, because there's a tremendous amount you can do. And absolutely, it starts with becoming insulin sensitive, and getting appropriate drivers appropriate energetics, which includes ketosis, by the way, you can do a PET scan, and you can actually see the reduction in glucose utilization in the temporal and parietal regions for at least 10 years before a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, people who are APOE4 positive, and that's 75 million Americans, you can actually see changes in glucose utilization in the brain in the late 20s often. So again, what we call Alzheimer's disease is a protective response that should be really rare in our society. And it's become the third leading cause of death as Professor Christine Yaffe from UCSF published a couple of years ago this is now the third leading cause of death in the country. It should be a rare disease if everybody gets on appropriate prevention or early reversal.
0: Yeah, I, I feel like in some sense that's like so optimistic and so idealistic because people are so uneducated about lifestyle where I think where it's just in a culture where it's give me the magic pill, the magic bullet to just solve all my problems. And I don't like, let me do whatever the hell I want in terms of like poor lifestyle, which, as you're saying, these things just accrue up chronically over years and years and years. And yeah, if you're just overly uh, consistently chronically high insulin, yeah, your body's compensating. Your brain is compensating. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense from a homeostatic perspective. Like the body is quite adaptive and you're putting into a, environment where you're constantly triggering insulin. It's like, oh well, oh, the brain needs to compensate. And I think it's interesting that absolutely I think I'm curious to get your thoughts. Uh, so obviously, increasing insulin sensitivity through carbohydrate restriction or carbohydrate control or exercise or fasting, I think these are all relatively well, you know reasonably evidenced interventions to drive towards insulin sensitivity. Uh, I think more work is along the way. I've also seen pretty compelling data around exogenous ketones and exogenous lactate, which bypass the insulin pathway or or pyruvate dehydrogenase, where we can rescue the like, like the glucose deficit in the brain scan. Uh, What is your sense of some of these alternate substrates to rescue the energy deficit, promising uh, stabilizing part of the solution? or is, is still lifestyle just like the, like the optimal weight resensitizing the insulin?
1: Yeah, no, it's a huge part of the solution. And in fact, you know, here's the thing, for all of us, there is a certain number of rate limiting steps that are critical. And so again, for people where that's not the rate limiting step, ketones aren't going to help that much for people where that is the rate limiting step, which is relatively common, but that's going to be very helpful. So you can go back to those four terms we talked about in the denominator, energetics, And that's typically four big things, blood flow and oxygenation, and ketones uh, to, to, you know, to to burn, and then your mitochondrial function, if you don't have the mitochondria to burn the ketones, it's not going to help you. So you have to have those four things. And you're absolutely right, what happens is, we need to be metabolically flexible, able to burn glucose, able to burn ketones. Unfortunately, for so many of us, we're able to burn glucose, and we've had glucose, glucose, glucose for years, we haven't had the ketones. And so Dr. Stephen Kinane has done some really nice work showing you can bridge that energy gap in the brain by adding ketones. And we typically recommend people get between 1.0 and 4.0 millimolar beta hydroxybutyrate into their brains, which you can do endogenous ketosis has its own advantages. But to start with, Exogenous ketosis is excellent. Great way to start. And so, you know, when we see patients who are having cognitive decline, that is an emergency. They're telling us we are, are on the wrong side of that equation. And for many of them, it is at least partly because of their energetic mismatch. So therefore, getting them going on some exogenous ketones to begin with very helpful. Now you can also check with breathalyzer. But again, you want to be able to check these various parameters to know which ones are affecting you and which ones are not. And as you know, there are so many wearables and and simple things you can do that weren't available even five or 10 years ago. So you can now check your nocturnal hypoxia. You can do it with an Apple Watch. It's simple. You can check your ketone levels you can do it with a breathalyzer called biosense. You want to, in that case, get yourself above 10 ACEs. Or if you're going to use a, uh, you're going to use a blood check, Uh, and just prick your finger fine you can do like with a precision extra or a keto mojo and you can get these all these things over the counter very simply you want to get between one and four millimolar you can check your heart rate variability as you know you can check your blood pressure which is easy to do you know you can check your sleep stages and how much REM and non REM sleep you can use things like an aura ring you can check your temperature and actually see it very uh, you know the stories of getting people very early with COVID picking it up on their wearables before they ever had any idea that they had this, these things are so helpful. And they're helpful for us to gather data to allow us then to to use AI to figure out, okay, what are the critical things because, you know, think about it, there's a medical revolution that's happening. And unfortunately, it's largely a silent revolution. In the 20th century, medicine was about what it is, what is the diagnosis, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, whatever. And now you're going to treat that with a prescription. And as you indicated, I mean, that that doesn't work. It's a, it's a simple, it's a way to get at simple illnesses like pneumococcal pneumonia, but not complex chronic illnesses. This is the era of algorithmic medicine. Now, and this is why I say software is the future of medicine. Because now what you need to do, it's the era of why. So we don't want to just say you have Alzheimer's. That's like saying you died of fever. In the 1600s, people died of fever all the time. And then we realized, wait a minute, the fever is due to this organism or that organism. Now people are dying of Alzheimer's, the term Alzheimer's should never be followed by a period. Alzheimer's due to what And we discovered and published six different subtypes of Alzheimer's. So there is an inflammatory subtype and a glycotoxic subtype, which is the one with the insulin resistance. And there is an atrophic subtype, a toxic subtype a vascular subtype and a traumatic subtype. These things could are all these things all fold into that equation we talked about earlier. And so you need to look at those things. And as I said, the wearables and the ability, you can now look at your genome. And now you can look at all these different wonderful things, and your ketones and you know your heart rate, so your stress levels and all of these things that can help you to optimize these things, reduce your risk and improve your own cognition.
0: Amazing. I mean, I like what you're saying just inspires me because I think, again, I don't have a traditional research or medical background, but it makes so much obvious sense to me as a technologist where having real time data streams on all of your biomarkers can only help. And as you can actually apply big data algorithms to these problems, we'll just get more and more precise recommendations and more personalization. And I think this transition from population-based medicine, which is like, okay, we're going to do randomized controlled trials on 1,000 humans that might not necessarily be related to, you know, my genetic profile, my personal basis, and then kind of just having that population, public health policy perspective, that is directionally correct, but is not like actually bespoke to a Dale or a Jeff or a Jasmine or a or or a Paul, right? And and I think that has to be the future. I want to dive into a couple specifics here, so. You know, our research lead, Dr. Latmanster and I published a review paper in frontiers in physiology, looking at the recovery aspect of some sort of ketone threshold for seeing some of the mTOR activation in sports recovery. And we hypothesized somewhere between one to three millimole beta hydroxybutyrate as that threshold. I'm curious, you you, you threw at a, a region between one to four millimole in terms of the target level of blood beta hydroxybutyrate that might be potentially efficacious for at least stabilizing mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's is that do you have a more tighter bound? Or is that more bespoke towards individual patients? Obviously, that one to four range is pretty wide for like, for 1.0, that's pretty doable through a ketogenic diet, obviously getting to four is Pretty tough again, like for I know, like a lot of our, our audience and listeners have done like multi day fasts, right? Like four millimole ketones is like five days of fasting, pretty tough to get on a ketogenic diet, even if you're close to zero carbohydrate. Do you have some sense in your clinic, whether it's data, unpublished data, clinical practice, that you can tighten that bound a little bit?
1: Yeah, so that's a great point, you know. So, again. It's, it's interesting to me that the old-fashioned medicine, you look at one variable at a time, but that's just not the way the brain works. It's this whole network. So you have to look at a whole set of things. And that's where AI is going to be so incredibly helpful to look at because there's You know, way back in 2011, we proposed the first comprehensive trial for people with cognitive decline. And we were turned down by the review by the IRBs, the review boards, because they said, no, you must not understand how to do trials because you can only change one variable. And we said, Well, you guys must not understand Alzheimer's because it's not a one variable disease. You got to look at all the different things together. So here's the thing, when you look at each of these recommendations that we have, it's based on all we've had over 5,000 people go on a protocol. Now we've trained over 2,000 physicians from 10 different countries and all over the U.S. And so we start looking at you know who's doing the best on this protocol, and the people who are doing the best are typically getting over 1.0 in uh, over 1.0 millimolar beta-hydroxybutyrate. And yes, in some cases they're doing this exogenously, in some cases they're doing it endogenously again, the endogenous gives you some advantages an anti inflammatory state, for example. But Dr. Stephen Kinane is the one who showed that in fact, as you go up in your, your ketone levels, you can cure that deficit, that energetic deficit, you can actually get enough ketone burning to improve that deficit. So we started there. And then we looked at where okay, he's suggesting that same sort of range We're looking at who's actually done best. Now, there's no reason. You don't have to get to four. We're just saying, please get to one. The people who are down at 0.3, 0.4, overall, they're not doing as well with their reversals of cognitive decline. And we've had a lot of people say, oh, you know, what are you talking about? You can't reverse cognitive decline. We've documented, we published 100 documented cases back in 2018. So we're seeing this again and again and again. And yet it's not, you know, the general... uh, the, the, the general medical group has said, you know, we don't believe this yet. Well, okay, we're, we're publishing data. The and this trial that we just finished will, uh, you know, will confirm and extend that previous published data. So you want to get in that now you start getting as you know, you start getting too high, there can be problems there as well. And, and on the other hand, you don't want to get so low that you're not getting into that mild ketosis. So you know, we we use, you know, we call this mild, mildly ketotic. And for the the dietary part of the overall protocol, this is a plant rich, high fiber, uh, mildly ketogenic diet. Yeah, you can have meat and fish if you want to, or you don't have to have meat and fish, it's totally up to you. You want to if you're going to do meat and fish, you want to use the right kinds, right? You want to make sure that it's a grass fed beef or pasture chicken, or wild caught fish, you want the low mercury fish. You don't want to be eating a lot of tuna because mercury is one of the contributors to cognitive decline. So you want to get those. So, so yeah, that's where we end up with one to four. And again, you know, could you do it at point nine nine? Yeah, probably. You know, do. do, Am I worried if someone goes to four point one? Not particularly. But that's the you know that's the optimal range. And when you're again, when you're down at point three point four, you're not going to get as good results.
0: Yep. Yeah, I agree in terms of just like, it's just from an athletic perspective where I spend most of my time. I mean, that just that just like such a small amount of the actual substrate being burned. And it's like such a nominal amount of ketones. It's just like feather dusting at, at that point. There's two things I want to like expand out here. So one is talking about the traumatic side of house. Yeah, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about traumatic brain injury and concussion. And curious to get your thoughts on potentially the a uh, relationship between acute traumatic brain injury concussion with Alzheimer's, because as I've been researching and, and looking at the scholarship between the metabolism, the physiology of the metabolic cascade between Alzheimer's and traumatic brain injury, and, and it and it has so much analogous pathways, right? Glycolysis is shunted on 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 both disease states, both both states. Uh, there's an activation of the pentose phosphate pathway, ketones and oral lactate seem beneficial for both conditions. You mentioned that as one of the six contributors that you'd identified curious to hear a little bit more about how you connect reconcile the TBI concussion with Alzheimer's, I think in, in some sense, and maybe this is a too much of a stretch of the term. I think there might be like a model relationship between TBI and Alzheimer's in the sense of potentially looking at overlapping therapeutics, because there seems to be similar uh, metabolic responses in the brain.
1: Absolutely. So let's go back to the fact that the fundamental nature of Alzheimer's disease, that the thing we call Alzheimer's is an insufficiency of the support of a of a network that underlies neuroplasticity. So there are all these different things we talked about uh, insulin resistance earlier and things like that inflammation is critical. Now, you can get there with this insufficiency in many ways. And one of them is trauma. So now when you're actually creating this trauma, it's important to remember, you can get there with a with mild repeated trauma. And this is something that comes up again and again and again. Now, there is what's called CTE chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which where you have tau without the amyloid. And what that looks like is basically, you've cleared up the amyloid over time, these people are, you know, you get the trauma relatively young things like football players, you clean up the amyloid or Because Remember, the difference there is with insulin resistance, there's an ongoing insult. With trauma, there's there there are specific insults, episodic insults, but it's not ongoing after the trauma is over. So now you're trying to repair that trauma. And absolutely, you end up with a tauopathy and often with amyloid, although the amyloid can be cleared over time. And so you now can address this by supporting this and by supporting it with things. And you mentioned the ketone effect. As you know, there are also big effects of high omega-3s as an example. And so there are nice protocols. And we, we believe that anyone who's Played traumatic sports or, or or had head injuries in, in uh, automobiles and things like that should all be on prevention. And by the way, so should anybody who's had COVID-19, because there are very clear long term cognitive effects. And even as you probably saw recently, uh, Parkinson's in some patients who've had COVID-19. So anyone who's had those sorts of insults should be on prevention as early as possible. And this is where, yes, this contributes. In many ways, this, what we call type five, which is the traumatic, has some similarities with type two, which is the atrophic, because you're not getting the supply. In one case, it's because you don't have enough of the trophic support. In another case, it's because you don't actually have the anatomical connections. So, yeah, there's a tremendous amount that can be done. As you indicated, there are some some similarities in terms of the biochemical alterations. So, I think, again, that TBI plays a role in increasing likelihood for cognitive decline that we associate both with Alzheimer's and CTE, which again, you know, are close cousins, CTE is essentially uh, Alzheimer's where you cleaned up the amyloid and now you have a chronic tauopathy that doesn't any longer have the amyloid, but it's the same general idea. It's a degenerative process in response to an insult, which altered this beautiful uh, synaptic network.
0: Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think I just have a lot of friends who are professional boxers or MMA fighters, or just folks in military. And it's just like you, these guys are just getting concussions and TBI's yeah. daily, basically, and just like, uh, in, in some sense, I am worried for them, because yeah, yeah, I don't want them to, you know, in 1020 in years, be a vegetable essentially and i mean i don't mean it in the most light like i don't mean it in like a insulting way but like that's literally the end end state of alzheimers that's also like i respect their craft right like this is how they uh, are making a living in in that passion and craft so how do we enable someone to pursue their career path and choice but extend their longevity without you know finding everyone's kind of sweet spot in terms of Risk and reward, right? Like I, I, I think that is again, an interesting, just personal choice, right? Like, am I going to be the person saying, "Hey, we should ban these types of sports"? Like, I don't think I, I, I don't think that's my position to say. But if I have friends who are pursuing these careers and passions, it's like, how do we help them extend their longevity here?
1: Yeah, well, you know, so here again, here's here's the good news. I think going forward, that the good news about chronic complex problems like CTE and all in Alzheimer's and things like that, is that you can see them coming. Unlike things like pneumococcal pneumonia, which happens so quickly, those they're acute illnesses, you can treat them acutely, you can use a monotherapy, they get better, or you're going to die. With Alzheimer's and these other chronic illnesses, they're complex chronic, so that the good news, if you are measuring function, you can begin to see when it falls off. So we believe that for example, there should be dementia insurance, everyone can check once a year, see where you stand As you begin to have a change in function, you can jump in and improve. So the people who are doing these sorts of sports, you want to do it fine, go ahead. But get yourself followed up, check and see your you can check processing speed, check you there's all sorts of simple electrophysiology you can do check your theta beta ratio check your dominant alpha rhythm, check your p 300 a and p 300 b. These are all relatively simple things to do. Now, as you start falling off, you say to the person, what you're doing, whether it's for a living, or whether it's an an amateur status, you know, is is actually starting to damage your brain. So you should get you take some time off, get on appropriate uh, treatment or prevention. And let's make sure that you don't have long term problems. So again, having more data, can be huge. And we're right now, you know, we're all kind of locked into this ancient notion that we're just going to go along blindly, until someone says, Oh, my gosh, you've got CTE." you know, you look at the, as you know, the NFL football players, they're all at risk for, uh, for cognitive decline due to CTE. And when you look with PET scans, virtually all of them have evidence of it. So let's get in earlier, let's make sure that they know as they're playing you know you may play until 28 29 30 and then say you know what things are starting to change electrophysiologically i'm going to get on appropriate treatment here and now is the time to get out um, having that information would be so helpful to so many people
0: 100% I, I we should just follow up in terms of just some friends that are yeah. professional boxers and I love to you know just speak offline about that and another point that i think is especially frightening to me is the bio like the inorganics. And you mentioned testosterone estradiol as contributors of cognitive dysfunction. I mean, I, I, like, something that like no one talks about is just the, the, the fall of testosterone in men. Like, I, I think we talk a lot about, like a lot of problems. But I think one of the underspoken, like data sets that I see is that like, testosterone in the average man drops 1% year over year, and it's been very consistent over like, Last 30, 40 years. And it is scary when I see just the average testosterone of the of, of a young man today is like equivalent to a 60, 70-year-old man of 50 years ago. And I'd love to unpack how that correlates to cognitive dysfunction. One, and then two, just the inorganic toxicity in our environment, right? Like, okay, we're talking about insulin resistant, okay, I can eat a more low carbohydrate diet, I can eat a more sensible diet, I can do some fasting or eat more ketogenic or have some exogenous ketones or all of these, you know, different tools that are available to us. Okay, I can stop getting punched in the face as a career, but the inorganics and just like the dropping hormonal levels of both men and women in terms of fertility on both sides of the house. That's like, almost unavoidable. Like if you're living in a city, you're getting exposed to these inorganics. How do you make sense of that? How serious is this? Are you doing something personally to ameliorate this condition? I think this is like in so insidious because, like, because I think it's so inactionable for people. No one really talks about it, right? Like, like I'm surprised that no one talks about the the like the cratering of testosterone.
1: Yeah. It's, you know, it's amazing. And again, we go back to the equation. So you've got in the in the numerator, these various toxins, and then in the denominator uh, are, the, is the, are the trophic effects, which include these various hormones. Um, and that includes, of course, uh, vitamin D as a nutrient that is really a hormone like nutrient and incredibly important in COVID 19 outcomes, but also incredibly important in Alzheimer's and affects hundreds of genes. Uh, critical for your risk for for Alzheimer's disease. And most of us, you know, aren't getting optimal, uh, multiple things from vitamin D to iodine, magnesium, uh, you know, on and on zinc, etc. So these are all critical players, you're absolutely right. And one of the things that really surprised me when we first started looking at the different subtypes, this was back in 2014. We started looking at People, the groups that had more inflammatory and more atrophic. Well, there was a group that was not responding to initial treatments to optimizing their hormone levels and their trophic levels and reducing their inflammation and all this. And we wonder, you know, what the heck is going on here? And they actually look, often look quite different as well. They present with a different type of Alzheimer's disease, uh, often less on the amnestic side and more executive dysfunction problems with calculating problems with facial recognition, things like that. And very early, we see people very commonly presenting in their late 40s, early 50s, with full on Alzheimer's disease. And so these people, we started to look at what the heck is this? Why are we seeing this whole group of people? And what we found, when we started talking to the spouses, and we started to look into their backgrounds and their histories, is that these were people who had exposure to these various toxins. And yes, as I mentioned, inorganics, things like mercury and and, uh, the air pollution, the California fires, huge issue, the World Trade Center, all these sorts of inorganic exposures. But then organics, benzene, toluene, you mentioned endocrine disruptors, things that are reducing your thyroid and your testosterone, your estradiol, progesterone, pregnenolone, DHEA, all these things that are all critical for your brain function. And yes, if you're low in testosterone, you have an increased risk for cognitive decline. If you're low in estradiol, you have an increased risk for cognitive decline. So looking at those measuring them and optimizing them is critical. And yes, as you indicated, exposure to these toxins is a huge problem and it can impact our hormones. So what's happening right now is the physicians we go to are not measuring these toxic exposures. And yet we are exposed to them. We're exposed to them through being indoors, through various mycotoxins, we're exposed to them through, as I mentioned, air pollution, we're exposed to them through the foods we eat through the water we drink. And so there is tremendous amount you can do, starting with just detoxing, starting with getting, you know, clean water, starting with sweating, and then you know getting rid of the sweat with a deep with a non toxic soap, like a Castile soap, that sort of thing, measuring your glutathione levels, easy to do, making sure that you've got appropriate prebiotics, probiotics. This is one of the reasons that we like high fiber diets, because the fiber actually helps you to remove toxins through your gut. So you're, you know, you're removing these things through your sweat, you're removing it through your defecation, through your urination, all of these things through your breath all of these things. And in fact, most of us are on the wrong side of that balance, we're accumulating them more than we are removing them. And by the way, the, the neurological disease that is on the upswing more than any other as much increased as Alzheimer's is, which it is Parkinson's is actually worse. In terms of being on the upswing, there are about 1 million Americans with Parkinson's and about a million Americans with Lewy body disease. Which is a related condition, and this is the one that's dramatically increasing. And why? Because of the exposure to various toxins, toxins that damage your mitochondria put you at increased risk for Parkinson's. Whereas toxins that have an impact on this this neuroplasticity system put you at an increased risk for cognitive decline of Alzheimer's. So these things are absolutely critical. And I recommend everyone please find out where you stand both with respect to these various toxins, they're, they're measured. you can get urinary mycotoxins measured, for example, you can get look at these various organics, and please you know, get, check these out and check your glutathione level and check your your genetic status. There are some of us who are poor detoxers, and we tend to get these neurodegenerative diseases more than others. And there are some of us who are quite good detoxers. There are many people that have nulls in their glutathione related genes who are poor detoxers. So again, there's so much more that you can do that is currently being done by standard of care.
0: Yeah, I mean, standard of care is not much to be honest, right? Like, I think the average person listening is probably lucky to see their doctor once a year. I mean, that's just a fact. It's not a critique or a or indictment. It's just like, that's just the truth. I mean, I think people are just too busy and it's too expensive. So and uh, the
1: doctors aren't checking the right. T- if you go into your doctor and say, "I want these tests done," the doctor will say, I, "I don't do those tests."
0: Yeah, yeah. That that's where like I think it's interesting to like speak with folks like yourself, where it's like I think me from outside the traditional medical, I don't know the industry because it's a business at, at some level. Yeah, it just like doesn't make sense because like I think if, like the incentives are wrong. It's like, hey, you got to clock in, build to code. You have medical school debt. Like you gotta just turn people in and out, and it's like these these are un unstandard tests, right? Like you kind of maybe you have to argue with insurance companies get re- reimbursed for this stuff, and most people don't have really good insurance. So just like and and something's like kind of a shit show, um, and 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 it's just like it's 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 just like kind of mind boggling. Because again, from just the outside, it's like. Like a lot of these things seem like luxuries or things that seem like like extra bells and whistles. but I just like just intuitively, like when people are in like a much less polluted environment, like I, I I think that this might be in a vacation effect, but I think there's something about just like being with less just like pollution of just being in a city, right, being in San Francisco or being in New York City or being in Los Angeles. If we're in on a, you know, being in Tanzania or something, and it's like, oh, like you just are not surrounded by as much toxins. I think there's something so subjective or intuitively, like you just seem a little bit more energetic, and maybe it, this might be just me bias and being, like, hey, I'm on a vacation, I just feel better. But there's likely something just towards availability of toxins, and I think it's like people just don't know, and I think it's like being ascribed to a placebo effect or vacation effect, but I think just the way. I, I think quantitatively if people are actually measuring this, and I, I challenge our audience if people there's grad students out there, just actually measure this, like there's likely some actual qualitative and quantitative improvements. That's not just some like subjective placebo effect here.
1: It's a really good point. And you know, what what happens is because people are not measuring these things as they should be. They they keep talking more about what you should do. Well, you should go on a vacation. You should de-stress. You should do this with, well, it helps some people and it doesn't help other people. So what's really interesting to me is we're in the dark ages here. So you go back to the early 1970s. You couldn't do any of the, there, there were no home computers. You couldn't do printing. You couldn't do, you know, desktop publishing. You couldn't do so many of these things. There were no wearables, all this stuff. And so there was a revolution, obviously, Silicon Valley was at the center of it, saying, Okay, you can now do all this stuff on your own. This is where we are with all these health parameters. What's being done is like the old IBM, like of the the 70s. It's all being it's all being moved It's all sitting in your doctor's office, who isn't doing the important things for you to know. And the revolution that's coming is to have all these wearables, to have all the AI, to all this look to say, look, this person actually needs a vacation. No, this person actually needs a detox program. This person actually has undiagnosed pathogens. And so to be able to collect all these and to look at, to be able to do these outside of your typical doctor's office is the future. Because unfortunately, the the physicians, as you said, they're stuck with the business model. They have to respond if they order any of these tests. They're immediately told by the business person, "You can't order those tests because, let's face it, the, the medical model is set up. You pay up front, so the, the more they can get from you up front, and the less they can give you on the back end, the more money they make, right? So, of course, you're going to get as little as possible on the back end, and that's not optimal for your health. So, we need to look at these parameters over time. And this is going to be a fundamental change with all of these complex chronic illnesses. And my argument is that and I put this in, in the, the book I published last year, the future, the, the, you know these diseases will be seen as 20th century diseases. We're going to by the end of this century, there will these, these complex chronic illnesses like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's are going to be very rare illnesses, you know lupus, all these things, because it will become much more clear what's driving them and you'll be able to prevent or reverse them early on very easily.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I I think just having had just a lot of just wonderful conversations with like great doctors and, and just understanding more about the healthcare Leviathan or the industry. It's it just like, interesting to see how there are young people that want to do well for their community. then they enter into this like ecosystem where they're literally like car technicians, right? Like, they are so busy just filling out insurance forms and reimbursements that they're just like spending 15 minutes and algorithmically just prescribing pills. They're not actually trying to go to the root cause of primal causes, as you're describing here, right? Like, they literally don't have the amount of time that maybe you or I have literally thinking, hey, what is a systematic primal root cause of these chronic diseases? It's more like, hey, um, I'm a technician, uh, diabetes, metformin, th- this thing, rapamycin, this thing, like, you know, prescribe some uh, Alzheimer's drug, right? And it's just like, I don't want to critique people because I think they came into this industry to do good. But they're, they're so service level, they don't understand actually the physiology, to the level that like, it, it's like, it's like silly to me, because like, I don't have any professional training in this area. And yet, I I, I think I understand the biology better than these people. And it's like, this is weird, you know? Yeah,
1: yeah. no, and, and what they're doing is they're, they're serving as quickly as possible, medicine. So they're cooking the, you know, they're cooking the, the medical hamburger as quickly as they can and moving it down and just serving you this stuff, which is crap. Yeah. And unfortunately, as you said, they, these people went into medicine because they want to help that they, they went into medicine because they love being healers because they want to do the right thing, but they're limited by the system. And the system does not allow them to do tests that are important. The system does not allow them to do the appropriate preventive care. The system does not allow them to use the appropriate algorithms and the appropriate software to get best outcomes. Um, It is a business, unfortunately. And so this is what really needs to happen. My argument is that we are in the middle of the bloodiest revolution in history. Because it's, it's a bloody revolution because we're changing from a system where people are dying. I mean, people are dying left and right of Alzheimer's. You look at what's going on in this country right now, there is about a 15% chance for each of us who living today that we will die of Alzheimer's if we don't have better prevention and reversal. And it should be again, it should be a rare disease. So what that means is about 45 million of the currently living, that's almost a hundred times as many who've died of COVID-19. So this is how big the Alzheimer's pandemic is. And that's just one, one illness. So this is a huge, huge problem. And in fact, as I mentioned, the most common genetic risk, uh, which is APOE4, everybody should know their APOE status, easy to find out, you can do 23andMe or have your doctor check it, it's easy to do. Uh, And again, you don't need the doctor to to check it. And if you have if you have zero copies of APOE4, you have about a 9% lifetime risk of Alzheimer's. Single copy about 30% risk, two copies well over 50%. So everybody should know this and get on appropriate prevention. So this is a huge issue, and unfortunately, people are the doctors are just letting people die of Alzheimer's left and right, left and right, who never had to die of this illness.
0: Yeah. So yeah, we
1: are we are in the middle middle of a truly bloody revolution.
0: Yeah, and it's yeah, and I can attest to that. I mean, it's very simple. I I have my twenty three in Me. I don't have any copies of apoe four. Very very lucky. I didn't do anything to deserve or not deserve it, but it just is what it is. So I mean. That's not to say that I'm not going to be thoughtful of my lifestyle, but like lucky to understand at least the probabilities of my predispositions. And yeah, I'm, I'm curious, I think we I think just through the conversation, we didn't hit exactly on the endocrine system. I, I think, again, just like do you have any like holistic thoughts there? Because I think just the rapid drop of the sex hormones, I think is like, like very interesting because I think it belies so much of the cultural and like modern issues around fertility, childbearing, I I think it's something that, again, is like, underspoken about. And I think it is due to environmental toxins and inorganics. And it sounds like, you know, it leads to things like Alzheimer's, I think it is, it is a weird to talk about in some way, because it affects identity in some ways too. So it's like, it starts bridging into like, like identity, identity politics. And so I, I think it's almost somewhat a landmine to talk about. And maybe that's why people don't really talk about it. I don't want to, you know, put you on the spot. But like, that to me seems to be one of the most critical environment, like, like, like pandemics that no one talks about just like, okay, like, if the average testosterone is dropping like a brick, like fertility rates are dropping like a brick, like, uh, this is kind of weird.
1: Yeah. And there are these, as I mentioned, all these endocrine disruptors that we are exposed to. So yeah, for all these things, step one, get it measured, find out where you stand. If it's if it's abnormal, step two is find out why what's driving this and try to get it so that endogenously, you can optimize this step three is after you've done the best you can endogenously, if it's still not where it needs to be, you can exogenous just as you said, with the ketones, you can now increase and that's true for testosterone and estradiol and progesterone, there's bioidentical hormone replacement, which is actually very powerful in terms of preventing cognitive decline and helping to reverse cognitive decline. So the one of the big parameters, though, again, is the first derivative. It's not just what the number is, but how quickly it's falling. So if when you go through menopause, unfortunately, some people will drop their levels precipitously, and they are at increased risk. And as Maria Shriver has pointed out, and others have pointed out, Alzheimer's is much more common in women. And it is a she says a woman centric disease. So about 65% of patients are women and about 60% of caregivers are women. And nobody knows why that is. But the thought is at least in part because they when they go through menopause, they have this precipitous decline. And by the way, we see many, many people who present with their Alzheimer's early on, right around the time of menopause or shortly thereafter, they have again, they've changed that integral the equation that I mentioned earlier, they've had a precipitous drop in that term in the denominator, which is related to trophic support. Because of a fall in estradiol, and so again, you can treat that. You can you can reverse that problem. With men, as you mentioned, so andropause, you do. And you mentioned yes, lower levels across the board than there were a hundred years ago. But also, there is a fall each year, but it is a mild fall. So with menopause, you have a rapid drop, which unfortunately seems to be worse for the brain. With andropause it's slower. But there are of course other problems with uh, so if you're a man, you have increased risk for ALS, you have an increased risk for Parkinson's, you have a decreased risk for Alzheimer's. So there does seem to be that this importance about how quickly these things drop. And yes, everybody should be checking their estradiol, testosterone, uh, prednisone, progesterone, t3, t4, uh, free t3 and free t4. Uh, and TSH reverse T3, all of these critical things that are all supported. These are neurosteroids and other hormones that support your synapse formation. And so again, support best network function.
0: 100%. I mean, I I feel like we could have like another hour here, but I want to be thoughtful of time. So like, we we should definitely have you back on I feel like this conversation opened up a can of worms where I think our audience is going to ask Different follow up questions, so let's definitely schedule a follow up conversation here. But I like to wrap up uh, with a couple questions. If you had infinite resources and you're a dictator of science and in, in, in the world, what study would you run? I mean, you could basically have infinite population, in, infinite intervention. It, you know, I know you have a protocol that you've brought out to to to, to market or, or popularity for you putting people on on a protocol. What would that? What would your science experiment look like? What Would you like to prove as a as a key endpoint?
1: Yeah, great point. And, and we thought about this a lot, because the, the point here is to reduce the global burden of neurodegenerative disease. This is a trillion dollar global problem. This is one of the most significant problems right now with all these people undergoing neurodegeneration, just Alzheimer's alone is a trillion dollar global problem. So the idea is just as we years ago had vaccines, So you had for smallpox, for polio, for things like that, we need to roll out a global program for Alzheimer's disease. Now, it's not quite as simple as just a simple vaccine. But it is going to demand bringing together the software engineers with the physicians to create these optimal programs, which is what we've been working on, create optimal programs. And if you think about it, you can't do a you know, 15 or $20,000 workup on every single person in the world, that's okay. So what you do is you use essentially a sieving model. So you start with the population and say, Okay, we're going to put everyone on basics. And we're going to address those very things that I mentioned, you can get people on appropriate, you know, ketogenic, mildly ketogenic diets, um, some exercise, some basic things, brain training, these are things you can do very cheaply, very efficiently. Now a certain number of people will respond to that. Some people will now begin to have symptoms. Okay, again, it's very cheap to to check these over time online. Those people who break through that, we go to the next level. Now they have more extensive testing. And now they actually will get on a more extensive program. Most people will respond. And by the way, when we see people with SCI, which is the earliest stage, subjective cognitive impairment, virtually 100% of those people get better. When we see people at the next stage, mild cognitive impairment, most of those people but not all get better. And we see them at the next stage, which is full on Alzheimer's disease, which is really like saying late stage metastatic cancer, what we call Alzheimer's is really an end stage process. There's a lot of opportunity to intervene much earlier. So the point is you work your way through here, And as people break through that, there will be a smaller and smaller group that breaks through, they need more extensive testing, more extensive treatment, and the last group will be inpatients. So you're actually going to say you've broken through multiple things, we're actually going to put you in the hospital for a month, we're going to do all the testing and find out something is wrong with your genetics and your biochemistry, your toxin exposure, you you may have uh, ongoing pathogens, which is one of the common things we find people have Borrelia, or they have specific things from the or from their poor dentition, their oral microbiome changes, their sinus microbiome changes. These same organisms, by the way, are found by the pathologists in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's. So what I would like to do is have this sieving model, where we can get a very efficient reduction in the global burden of neurodegeneration.
0: Amazing, we'd love to see this through. So where do people follow your work? Are you on social? What's the best way for our listeners, our audience to stay in touch?
1: Yeah, so you can look, uh, there's a Facebook, Dr. Dale Bredesen, there's a website, drbredesen.com. Um, I work with a group of software engineers. That's Apollo health. This is a group that uh, a number of them came from Apple, uh, and Silicon Valley guys that have been working for years on these sorts of algorithms. And, uh, and so uh, that's Lance Kelly and his team and so you can look at Apollohealthco.com and uh, actually the clinical trial we just finished uh, is registered at clinicaltrials.gov. So uh, you know, register with the standard clinical trial, you can get information there as well. Uh, this will be published shortly so that you'll be able to, to, to see it in publication as well. So I'm on all the usual you know Instagram and Twitter and things like that uh, with uh, Dr. Dale Breson.
0: Amazing excited to have you back on and talk about the results when it's published and all the different ventures and and projects as they unfold here. Dale, uh, appreciate the conversation. This is really fun. Thanks so
1: much. Yeah, great talking to you, Jeff. Stay safe, okay? Yeah, you too. All right, take care.